0: Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, we're joined by advertiser and behaviour expert, Rory Sutherland, to learn how advertising influences us, and often makes us act illogically. This talk was recorded at the RI on the 10th of May, 2019, and just a quick warning that this episode does contain swearing. Finally, remember you can go to rigb.org to get tickets for upcoming events.
1: Ah, the great virtue of the physical sciences is that, and the first rule of the physical sciences, is is magic not allowed. In other words, you have a world where energy cannot be created or destroyed. One thing, quite predictably, consistently leads to another. And if you're designing a Boeing 787, for example, or you're building a bridge, or you're doing anything where success is defined in physical terms then adhering to those laws of physics, very strictly, is a very good thing, okay? So this is not an anti-science lecture, by any means, okay? I'll be clear about this. I've been a creative person in advertising agencies for about 29 years. It's quite common for creative people from ad agencies to go into businesses and go, now, of course, the future is all about creativity. No, no, you don't need this stuff. You need more creativity. Now, I don't think that's true, I don't want to think that air traffic controllers are desperately creative people, to be honest, okay? (laughs) The next time I fly on an an aeroplane, I don't want to think that the people who check the wheel nuts are wild experimentalists (laughs) or conceptual artists. Let's try anti-clockwise this time just for the lols. I don't want that. Okay? So if you're building a bridge and you can define success in terms of physics, then using a science like physics, where there's only one right answer or there's one clear optimal answer, that's fine. The mistake I think we've made, and I'd probably lay most of the blame at the door of economics, is that in attempting to mimic this certainty in the human and social sciences, we pay a massive price which isn't even visible to us. It's what I call a kind of creative opportunity cost. That whereas magic is completely impossible in physics, that's the whole point, that's why it's a science, magic is possible in the area of human perception and behaviour. And that if you aren't aware of this, A, you can miss evil things when they happen, but also you can miss the potential to do extraordinary things. Fundamentally, what makes the rules of human behaviour different uh, is exactly that thing that Wallace was talking about in 1909, which is that our perception of the world and the way we respond to it has not evolved to make us like atoms. We don't predictably react to the same stimulus in the same way, regardless of context, mood, circumstance. A really vital point about that, you know, depending on context, one of the first insights of anthropology is that something that can be very good in one circumstance can be terrible in another. So, for example... Generally, paying for things when you receive a service is a pretty good thing. But if you went to a friend's dinner party and left a couple of £50 notes on on the table at the end, (laughs) it will be wrong. But I go further than that and say that one of the fascinating things with with human behaviour, which makes economics and its attempt to mimic the certainty of the physical sciences a complete non-starter. And by the way, if some of my vocabulary there sounds a bit familiar, it's basically saying what Hayek said uh, about 60 years ago, okay? If the attempts to mimic the physical sciences are a non-starter, let me explain a few things where, depending on context, the same thing may cause people to react in one way or in completely the opposite way. Now, I'll give you an example of two markets. I would imagine, I don't know anything about it, but I imagine that the market for crude oil operates pretty much as economists would predict. So if the price of crude oil goes up and up and up, people who are sitting on unnecessary amounts of crude oil will decide to sell, therefore reducing the price of crude oil and helping it tend towards equilibrium. So that works pretty much with the neatness that economists would suspect. I would argue that the market for London property does not operate like that. Okay? My guess would be, roughly speaking, there are three hundred or 400,000 households in London who would actually, in a way, quite like to move out to the country or would be better off living in the country and the reason they haven't moved is because London property prices are going up. Now, unlike the owners of vast reserves of crude oil, they have two fears. One of which is, um, I might move out and miss out on future gains. Or, if I move out of London, I'll never be able to afford to move back in again. So, genuinely, I can th- I'll give you another example. Okay? The government produced a thing called a student loan, which is, I think, a total of £9,200 a year. for for up to three years, for completing further education. And the idea was to create a market in further education. There'd be highly innovative people doing one-year courses, so you only had to borrow £9,200. There'd be people doing much cheaper courses, which were part-time. No. Every single university (laughs) degree takes three years and costs £9,200. And that's because running counter to, say, standard economic theory, there's a thing called fence theory. It's only mentioned by a a little-known Italian academic at the University of Delft and one or two students of his. It's actually a really important um, idea. Why did London property prices go up? The standard narrative would be supply and demand. Actually, no. What happened is that when people buy a car, they generally have some idea of how much of their disposable wealth it would be desirable to spend on a car. For some reason, for 30 years, when people bought a house the heuristic they used was, I'll find out what the bank will lend me, I'll add it to any deposit I've got, and that's what I'll pay for a house. People, as with further education, there are certain areas of education where people naturally max out. And so my point is that if you have genuinely, in this world, a case where, depending on context, something can be good or bad, people can behave in one way or the opposite way, if you want a more trivial example of this, Normally, it's pretty bad for a restaurant to be rude, isn't it? But there's an exception to this rule, which is there's a Chinese restaurant in Soho which for the last 30 years has made an extraordinarily good living by being famous for being the rudest restaurant in London. Okay. So if you manage the expectation rightly, rudeness can go from being a downright disadvantage. You know, I wouldn't suggest you move many people from there to the fat duck at Bray or whatever, okay? But you can actually turn something like rudeness with the right contextualization, into a benefit rather than the cost. And that's because in physics you have an input and you have a consistent behaviour result. In human behaviour it's not a simple mapping of one thing onto another. You have a thing, you have the context in which the thing is perceived, which can be, gosh, that's nice, you've left 50 pounds on my table, or who the hell do you think I am leaving 50 pounds on my table? Okay, So you have the context of the thing, you have the meaning we then derive from the thing in its context, okay? The emotion generated by that meaning, and then the behavior that results from the emotion. And in order to change behavior, for example, or indeed to change perception, you don't have to change the thing itself. You can change any of the, inter- the, the um, intervening steps. And that to some extent is what advertising does, by the way. Uh, the meaning, the original meaning of advertising is from anima advertere, or to turn attention towards something. And what's the single probably uh, defining discovery, at least according to him, of Daniel Kahneman, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow? Um, When he was asked to um, summarise the most important finding of his life, he didn't mention prospect theory, for which he'd won the Nobel Prize for Economics. He mentioned the sentence, nothing is as important as we think it is while we're thinking about it. By which I mean we automatically, and this is probably a product of evolution, attach more importance to things we pay attention to And therefore, by diverting someone's attention, anima advertere, you change what they think is important. Now, if you look at an industry like that, for example, an industry that survived through changing what people paid attention to, uh, there's a fantastic example uh, which is essentially Cunard. Until about 1958, The entire competition between ocean liners to cross the Atlantic was a competition around speed. You competed for the Blue Ribbon. It was an objective measure, effectively. And people, you know, ships like the Normandy, the United States, uh, the Queen Mary, would all compete to see whether they could cross the Atlantic. I think it was west to east, wasn't it, in four and a half days or five. And then Boeing came along. And essentially, no one cared whether it was four and a half days or seven, because you could do it by plane in a single day. And Cunard still owned ships, and they realised what we've got to do is stop focusing people's attention on speed because we're going to look stupid, OK? <laughs> you know, an ad that said, cross the Atlantic in a miraculous four and a half days. is ridiculous. What we've got to get people to focus on is the nature of the experience. In other words, what those four and a half days are like, the onboard romance, the onboard glamour, etc. And so they instead of talking about speed, they completely did a vault fast and started talking about essentially the grandeur of the ship. The net result, by the way, was that, more or less, Cunard invented the world's cruise ship industry as a necessary reaction to this. So the point I'm making is that economics is entirely based on a no-magic model. The idea that the only way you can essentially improve the world is to make a thing objectively better in some measurable way or make the price lower. Now, my argument is that's an incredibly creatively limiting approach to improving the world. And I would argue in many ways that actually one of the reasons why we're kind of a bit unhappy in the UK is that most of the decisions are taken by people like lawyers and economists without even consulting anybody else. I'll give you a little example of magic, OK, and a little example of non-magic. Non-magic is the new London Bridge Station. Now, it's pretty good, by the way. On all objective measures, the new London Bridge Station is a lot better than the old one. The traffic flow is better. But there's something missing, by which I mean they've spent a billion pounds on this. And you go there and you go, this is quite a good station. But in terms of human emotion, there's nothing that gets you going. Now, will just contrast that with a bit of what I call apologies to the children in the audience, or rather to the parents in the audience. Children, children don't mind swearing at all, of course, do they? Um, but a piece of benign bullshit. When they opened the new St Pancras station... I don't know if anybody remembers this. They'd spent, similarly, about three quarters of a billion pounds on the New Pancras station. It was renovated after being nearly derelict. Some very cunning PR company, and I've never found out who, just seemed to make every press release contain the sentence that the new station had the, the Europe's longest champagne bar. Does everyone remember this? Right. You all remember it. Now, if you pause to think about this for a second, it's about the most absurd superlative in the history of the world, isn't it? No one ever says... I went to a champagne bar last night, did you? How long was it, okay? (laughs) Nobody ever goes, I used to go to that champagne bar, but as you get older, you like a kind of longer kind of champagne bar, (laughs) right? Yeah, at my age, what you want is a champagne bar. No. But every single person remembered it, because it was a bonkers superlative, okay? And what it said in one sentence, it was a magical little bit of alchemy because it said, this isn't just a a Banowsic utilitarian transport (laughs) hub designed for maximum throughput at minimum cost by a bunch of transport for London economists or whatever. It's actually a destination in itself and a place visiting possibly even for fun. And one of the things I'd always have in anything you do, now anybody familiar with Japanese Kano theory will know what I'm talking about, is everything should have a little bit of a bullshit budget, even the NHS, okay? (laughs) Right? Just a tiny little thing that's there not to deliver objective reality, it's there to deliver meaning. Now, if you put me in charge of the one billion budget for the new London Bridge station, which is pretty good in many respects, okay, I would have basically just held back. Yeah, what well, a million, a couple of million quid, and I said, okay. When this bastard opens, oh, sorry, when this thing opens, okay, it's going to be a really good station in every respect. I'm not suggesting you can substitute for basic, you, you know, usability, but it's just going to have the largest florist in London on the ground floor, okay. Now, it might not be the most profitable use of retail space. It may be that we'll have to lose an Oliver bonus, okay. <laughs> Um, I don't know about you, I think oncologists should study the spread of Oliver Bonus, shouldn't they? Because <laughs> there's something about it that doesn't make sense, right? Okay? It's like, when have you ever said, oh no, it's a real nuisance, I needed to buy so and so, but Oliver Bonus was closed, okay? So it may mean you sacrifice two paper chases and an Oliver Bonus to have the florist. It may be that objectively the florist doesn't make that much money, but it's a thing around which the lizard brain can kind of go, Woo, I like that. Did you see the florist? Okay. <laughs> Whereas nobody's going to go, I was very... Unless you're an architect, no one's going to go, I was particularly impressed by the architraves. Okay. Right. And it's just that little thing which is what you might call the tax you have to pay for the evolved brain. And the simple thing about the evolved brain, as I said, what we're looking for is not efficiency or utilitarian measures. What we like is meaning. That's what we really want in life. We're not after getting something for as little as possible. What we really hunger for is meaning. Also, it's vital to understand that the idea that objective reality is a useful thing to measure if you're trying to actually promote human happiness is a really dangerous assumption because we haven't evolved to see the world objectively at all, right? In evolutionary terms, if evolution can sacrifice 20% of accuracy to gain 1% of fitness... That's what it'll do. It'll make that trade-off every time. So, I mean, it's a really important thing to understand that... You know know that business, pareidolia, where you tend to see faces in things, for example. That's an evolutionary mechanism. We're very, very highly attuned to the fact that um, uh, to notice two eyes and a nose... And we, so that we even see electrical plugs and washing machines and things like that as having facial features. Why? Because it was to our evolutionary advantage to be, high, just like the fire alarm here, to be somewhat oversensitive to anything that might be two eyes and a nose, because it could be something to eat, it could be something that will attack us, or it could be a fellow human being where reading their expression meant the difference between life or death. Okay? Now, the downside of that is we tend to see that when, when it isn't there, But the people who didn't have that bias didn't survive long enough to to pass on their objective vision. That's the thing you've got to remember. Now, what worries me about this completely objective world run by economists is that... I'm going to get a bit nerdy for a second, but if you can't get nerdy in the royal institution, I mean, (laughs) where can you? Okay. I was alarmed by the way in which our interpretation of capitalism is essentially not a kind of exciting area where you have market-tested innovation experimentation where actually the value of capitalism is precisely its experimentalism, okay? It's, it's the fact that actually it's the plurality of solutions that it presents that enables us to find out what we might want and to find solutions in a kind of evolutionary way. Instead, it's been turned into an efficiency narrative because at the top you tend to get finance people who have a ridiculously sort of reductionist utilitarian idea of what value is, for example, also, if you think about it, we probably have created a, bonus cult, a, a business culture where bonuses for cost-cutting are really, really generous because cost-cutting provides you with you know, a clear, unambiguous measure of a saving, even though the costs may be invisible in somewhere else, whereas rewards for value creation aren't nearly so great. Now, I was beginning to think that something had gone wrong with... What you've got to remember, by the way, with economics? I don't know if anybody knows this. But if you're a standard, i.e., non-Austrian economist... There is not... Anybody here who's an Austrian school economist? Uh, brilliant, yeah. There's all, in every room, there's always one. Usually they sit at the back, actually, because <laughs> they're frightened of being attacked by the neoliberals, you see. But um, there's always one person in the room who self-declares as a... Um, um, the standard assumption of uh, economics is that every decision is made in a, in, by someone with perfect information in an atmosphere of perfect trust. Now, it didn't take me long to realize that if you work in advertising, that's creating an imaginary world where advertising and marketing don't need to exist. Very simply, okay? Because if everybody knows exactly what they want, how much utility they'll derive from it, therefore they know how much they're prepared to pay for it, and they completely trust the person who's selling it to them, you don't need any advertising. I freely admit that. So as a result, everybody brought up on that particular model of the world, which is basically the tube map on which business runs, and I use Tube Map advisedly. The Tube Map's quite useful as a map of the tube. What's weird about Londoners is they think it's a map of London. Have you noticed that? So it gives them completely delusional ideas, like they think that Fulham's in central London because it's on the tube. It's a suburb of bloody Oxford, frankly, okay? Right? And equally, people who use the tube map haven't got a clue about South London at all. Because it's not on the tube map. They think that South Londoners get to work by putting all their possessions in a red and white spotted handkerchief, tying it around a stick. And walking, okay? So economics, when it becomes the tube map of business decision-making, in other words, the um, go-to... It's actually not a map, technically, is it? It's a schematic diagram. But it's the go-to schematic that everybody uses. Um, I think it becomes very dangerous because it assumes, essentially, once you use that schematic, you assume that marketing is at best a necessary evil and it's merely a cost to be minimised and not a source of value creation and not a source of solutions to problems. And I'd like to suggest that's absolutely not true at all. And the further thing is that economics is basically wrong about what everybody's trying to do because it assumes we're in a world of perfect trust and perfect information. By the way, even if you could create those conditions, there's no way our brains evolved for such conditions, right? And anybody who evolved to be completely trusting of other people, highly unlikely to have reproduced, I would have said. They would have got it in the back of the head several years earlier, right? Okay. It's also wrong about what we're trying to do. Now, I had a very weird breakfast meeting. As I said, it was a breakfast meeting for me. It was brunch meeting for him uh, with Gavin Patterson when he was the um, chief executive of BT. We had a very odd conversation because he'd just come from a grueling meeting with city analysts who were giving him a hard time because BT broadband was more expensive than other people's broadband and it also had a larger market share. Now... Those of you in business will go, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? You're charging more for something, and lots of people are buying it. Call me old-fashioned, but you think that's, you know, they take him for a slap-up Nando's and say, (laughs) keep up the good work, Gav. (laughs) Were they doing that? No, they were not. Uh, They were berating him because they said, according to economic theory, okay, this situation is impossible. You will either have to lose market share or you'll have to drop your price. And therefore, your current revenue streams are unsustainable, according to economic theory. Now, I checked six years after this meeting, this is before they launched BT Sport, and it was still more expensive than everybody else's broadband, and it had a higher market share than it did before. Okay, All of those city analysts probably have an iPhone in one pocket and the keys to an Audi in another. Okay, But somehow they believe that telecoms is a complete commodity, and therefore all we're doing is basically buying you know, a certain number of megabits per second at as low a price as possible. And therefore they believed that telecoms should full follow the laws of basically, you know, I don't know, standard economic theory. As a result, I think they had to spend about a billion pounds on sport, not because consumers wanted it particularly, but in order that city people can say, thank you because your business is now consistent with our theories. <laughs> so you have this completely weird thing. In physics, if reality conflicts with theory, it's the reality that wins, right? In economics... If reality conflicts with theory, you just blame irrationality, okay, right? So imagine, imagine what physics would be like if every time an experiment failed, you just blame pervy electrons, right? <laughs> you could get away with murder, okay? But economics gets away with this perfectly well. Another thing in telecoms, because I've worked in it a lot, okay, I don't know how many people have heard of the phrase quad play. Anybody? Okay. It's the assumption that basically every telco has to offer landline telecommunications, broadband, television, and mobile telephony in one package. Because the theory is, and this has been a theory which has forced companies to buy and start other companies at a cost of billions, the theory is that through economies of scale and back-office consolidation, the person who offers four will be able to offer a 5 or 6 or 7% saving to consumers and therefore will mop up the whole market. Okay? What market share does quad play have at the moment? Uh, it's about 5 or 6%. It's not growing particularly. Most of those people are people with virgin cable, where, of course, the telly and the broadband and the phone all come in one thing anyway. Okay. In consumer terms, quad play is about as popular as a shit sandwich. Nobody wants it. <laughs> okay. Now, why is it that economic theory can be so wrong, and yet, weirdly, if you believe in it, you can cost companies billions of pounds, but you never get blamed? Okay. And the reason is that e- economists are fundamentally wrong or fail to understand a really important point about human decision-making. If you're making a decision under conditions of uncertainty, there's a thing effectively called bias-variance trade-off. Now, bias-variance trade-off is that you, although consciously you think when, you, when you're choosing, let's say you're choosing to buy a new television for your front room, whatever. By the way, wonderful behavioural science... Question for all of you. The television industry has run into a huge problem because they can't sell any television simply because no one knows what to do with their old one. But anyway, it used to be when your biggest telly was 32 inches, you moved that into the bedroom and you bought a massive plasma for your main room. But the main room telly is now so huge that it doesn't actually belong anywhere else. Anyway, sorry, that's a sideline. Okay. (laughs) Now, Dias Varian's trade off is if you're making a decision with an uncertain outcome, and in evolutionary terms, this is obvious when you think about it, okay? You have to ask two questions. One of them is, what, sorry, the first question is, what's the average outcome likely to be? In other words, you know, if I perform this decision lots and lots of times, on average, how well off would I be? Okay, one question, if you like. But you've got to ask a secondary one, which is, what's the worst that can happen? Because actually, if you think about it, it's not enough to know how good a decision is on average, we will take a certain amount of bias, which is, i.e. making a slightly worse decision, buying a slightly more expensive television, in order to minimise the risk that the television might be terrible. Do you see what I mean? If you think about it, if you were thinking of climbing a tree to get some nice cherries, and there were some reasonable cherries at 10 feet up the tree, and 50 feet up the tree, there were fantastic cherries, at some point you go, 99 times out of 100, I'm going to really enjoy those cherries that are high up. And so on average... They're the best cherries, because they're 50% better, and I've got a 99% chance of surviving to eat them. So as a one-shot decision, that's a rational thing to do. But anybody who is calibrated like that would rapidly end up dead, Okay, You have to go, actually, unless I'm starving to death, it's not worth taking a risk of catastrophe. And so we're calibrated to look at two things. We're calibrated, if you like, to make a trade-off between um, uh, high average, high variance, and low average, low variance. I've got a napkin somewhere drawn by Nassim Caleb over dinner once, with one of the most surreal conversations ever, which is... Um, the point we made is that McDonald's is the most popular restaurant in the world, not because it's very, very good, but because it's incredibly good at not being terrible, okay? <laughs> right? And it's a fair point, isn't it, okay? Actually, in terms of risk of getting the shits, you're better off at the Golden Arches than you are at the Fat Duck at Bray, okay? Fair? Actually, the risk of being significantly disappointed is probably higher, too. So McDonald's is a low-average, low-variance restaurant, which a lot of the time is exactly what people want. When you buy a TV, I would argue, what you're doing is you're paying $150 extra for the Samsung name, not because you think the Samsung TV is better on average, but because um, what you actually think uh, is that uh, it's about $150 more than the TV, which on average would be the same, but the Samsung TV, given their reputational skin in the game, is less likely to be awful. And if you think about it, when you look at a cheaper unbranded option, you don't consciously run through that variance question. In fact, the word variance probably doesn't enter your head. What you do is you feel mild fear. Okay. Now, over evolutionary time, here's a really simple bit of maths. Okay? Simplest bit of maths ever. This is to do with ergodicity. Has anybody come across this concept? Ole Peters, London Mathematical Laboratory. Go and have a look at what he's doing. He argues that economics has made a foundational error from which it's never recovered in that it assumes that expected utility is something that's ergodic, by which I mean that each gain or or loss in utility is independent of another one. Okay. And so what it does, it assumes... Again, I'm going to get nerdy for a bit. It assumes that ensemble probability is the same as time series probability. Now, just to give an example, okay, if you have 100 people taking a bet, you put $100 in the middle of the table, uh, and you take a bet once, okay, where if you get heads, you get $50, and if you get tails, you lose 40% of what you've got on the table, which at that point is $100, so you get 60. Overall, 100 people all taking that bet, averaged out, will end up 5% richer. Okay half of them will get 150 half of them will get 60 add those together it's a i think it's a 5% gain isn't it And the mistake economics assumes is that therefore one person taking that bet 100 times in a row would end up um uh, essentially 5% richer each time on average and therefore would end up very very rich No uh, if you take that bet a lot of times in a row you mostly end up skint Okay now, the difference is really hard to see. I can only explain it by exaggerating it insanely, which is to say that if I offered a 1,000 people a million pounds to play Russian roulette once, some of them would take me up on it, okay? If I offered anybody a billion pounds to play Russian roulette a 1,000 times in a row, nobody would, okay? <laughs> and it's fascinating to me as a marketer to discover, actually, how many times models, mathematized models of the world seem to assume that 1 times 10 is the same as 10 times 1. Now, of course, in maths it is. But when you add time into it, an individual identity, the ergodicity breaks down. This is my attack on high-speed 2, by the way. High-speed 1, if you live in East Kent, okay, saves a lot of people in East Kent an hour a day 200 times a year. If you live in Canterbury, that's basically 200 hours a year one person saving. Okay? The problem with high-speed two, it's not really like that. People don't commute from Manchester to London, and if they do, they don't really need a train, they need an estate agent, okay? (laughs) Right? Okay? Now, if you think about it, high-speed two might be saving a large amount of time, but it's more like saving 200 people one hour a year. Okay? Now... Although in terms of the time-saving model that all transport investment uses, there's no distinction between uh, you know, uh, one person saving 200 hours a year and 200 people saving one hour a year, I'd argue that the necessity for the investment in time-saving is massively different in those two cases. And yet no mathematical model really spots it. I think that's why Amazon Prime exists, by the way, which is that, uh, if you think about it, 10 people don't mind paying £4 pounds for delivery once a month but one person isn't going to pay four pounds for delivery ten times a month. So if you're an economist, you don't really distinguish. You say delivery has a certain amount of utility, and if you get things delivered a lot, you pay it a lot, and if you don't, you don't. What what? enough Bezos realised when he was already a billionaire, and he, you know, so he was already a billionaire when he launched Amazon Prime, and he obviously thought that actually paying four dollars eight times a month, even when you're worth a billion dollars, just kind of sucks. Okay. So this is really important, because if you look at things as being interdependent and life as being non-ergodic, two times two times two times two times two times two two is a bigger number than one times three times one times three times one times three. So in a lot of cases, it pays anything to what you might call reduce the variance. Some people believe this is the beginnings of the origins of human cooperation. Because if you have two people, and they go out hunting, and depending on their luck, they could get a one or two or a three, okay... And you make a rule between those two people. Okay, if we both get three, we both keep three. If we both get two, we both keep two. If we both keep one, we both keep one. But if you get a three and I get a one, we'll both split the difference and call it two each. Now, any pair of organisms that performed that trade-off would end up growing at a faster rate than any pair of organisms that didn't. And so I think it's here, isn't it? Yeah, meat pooling among mobile hunters. That's variance reduction. It's probably really, really heavily baked into us. And yet, nobody ever talks about it. I mean, one of my quibbles in, in the book, I mentioned that your sat-nav doesn't understand variance reduction in journey time. I don't think the driverless car understands variance reduction either. The problem with the driverless car, we already have driverless cars Fuck fuck's sake. They're called trains, OK? OK. <laughs> right? <laughs> OK? There is one driver, but the cost of the one driver split among 400 passengers is hardly going to break the bloody bank, is it, right? Okay. And the great thing with a train is you've got a vague idea of when you might arrive, whereas in a driverless car, it could be anything. You know, what people want isn't necessarily faster journeys, it may be low-variance journeys. And so uh, your satnav doesn't understand this. I could never understand it why I ignored my satnav when I went to catch a plane at Gatwick. And I realised that what I was doing is I was taking a slower road... But a road with a lower for Kent nerds, I was going on the A25 rather than the M25, okay? The M25 is faster. The A25 is nearly always, on average, 10 minutes slower, but it's never an hour and a half slower. Whereas if a lorry jackknifes at Clackett Lane, sorry, this is going a bit brummy now, isn't it? Have you noticed this? Have you got any brummy friends? They all have to talk about roads, have you noticed that? You know, the traditional greeting when you meet someone from Germany is, which way did you come? Oh, no, you should have gone down the B458. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, I was going a bit brummy there. But basically, what I was doing was going, look, okay, it's always going to be 10 minutes slower than the M25 at its best, but I'm never going to miss the plane. You see? That's the point about variance reduction, in a sense. I also think, by the way, has anybody ever had to choose an ad agency... Or been involved in a procurement process where they give you numbers to add up on a balanced scorecard. Have anybody done it? Now, you'll all admit this, won't you, right? You didn't do it that way at all, did you? You decided who you wanted to win, and then you backfilled the numbers so you got the result you wanted. And that's because the brain doesn't make those decisions out of adequate way. Because after all, if you're supposed to be working with someone and they're great on eight dimensions, but you hate them, okay? Okay? it doesn't matter what the other scores are, you aren't going to give them the business. Because if they're... It's like getting married, okay? All of you chose someone, let's face it, or it doesn't sound very romantic to say so, who wasn't particularly weak on any one dimension, okay? Now, obviously, okay, obviously when we get married, we say, no, you're perfect, Okay. But actually, if you think about it, when we actually decide who to get married to, there's a strong degree of satisficing going on, which is you could have someone who's perfect in nine dimensions and batshit crazy in the other one, <laughs> and you go, look, life's too short, right? <laughs> OK? So how we actually make decisions, this is a bit, a bit more technology stuff about ergodicity, from a guy, if you can read his name, can't you? Lars P. Sill, I think it is. Um, read up about this stuff, because it is really quite interesting. In other words, a random process is ergodic if all of its statistics can be determined from a sample function of the process. The ensemble averages, got that? The average of what happens in one shot taken by a 1,000 people is the same as one person taking the shot a 1,000 times. Okay, That's when it is ergodic. Real life is nothing like that. So economics is completely wrong about what we're trying to do. Because half the time, this is extraordinary, because a guy who knew David Ogilvie, an extraordinary man called Joel Raffleson, who was a copywriter in Chicago still alive in his 90s, had a conversation with David Ogilvy in the Chicago branch of Ogilvy in the 1950s, in which he said, I don't think people are choosing brand B over brand A because they think it's better. I think they're choosing it because they're more certain that it's good. Now, that was practically an insight worthy of a Nobel Prize. Funnily enough, Herbert Simon got a Nobel Prize for sort of similar insights uh, at not a very different time. But that's really what people are doing. And once you understand this, I think, once you understand what we're trying to do as evolved brains, what we define as rationality changes hugely. So to give an example, if you look at these, I think they're antelope, aren't they, I think? Some, some kind of antelope, okay? Why do they all herd together? Well, they herd together because you could go off on your own and get better grass by not sticking with the herd. The bummer about going off on your own is you've got, you spend half your time grazing and half your time keeping an eye out for lions. Now, if you're all in a herd, okay, what you do is you spend 98% of your time grazing and 2% of your time keeping an eye on the most neurotic antelope nearby because <laughs> he'll probably spot the lion first. right? Now, it occurs to me, once you understand that humans have an instinct a bit like this, we can suddenly understand, one... Why is it that people were paying a premium for BT broadband? They're paying a premium because they thought it was the one least likely to be terrible. It was the market leader, and therefore there was a limit to how bad it could be. It may not have been the best, the fastest, it certainly wasn't the cheapest, but it was the one the, the variance reduction brigade wanted. Okay? So maybe they were paying a premium for that. Very simple thing. Okay? In the case of financial services, why do you think financial services were so trustworthy uh, when it was all local? And the reason is, if you think about it, okay, um, you, your bank manager knew all his customers. All his customers knew him. He was a pillar of the local community. But there was an extra dimension of information. He knew that all his customers knew each other. So he only had to get caught out cheating one person on their contents insurance, and his reputation was toast in the whole town. So there's an interesting thing going on here. We, you know, the, the government was totally baffled when it introduced the opt-out pension. Do you remember this? So it was the default pension. They expected the level of opt-out to be about 30%, and in the end it was about 7 Why is that? What's the best pension to have, unless you're a sad nerd who like reads financial shit every day? The best pension to have is the same one as all the people you work with in the office. That's, that's the pension I want. Okay, I want the same pension as the people in the finance department. Because if they put the charges up by 3%, I'll never notice. But some sado in the finance department will, and I'll get to hear about it. Okay, so antelope intelligence which is apparently irrational if you're trying to eat eat the best grass you can suddenly makes sense when you understand the second order informational complexity of what's going on and actually I think that is the way we should sell financial services we should sell them at an employer level because the level of trust is much higher if you think about it there's a huge asymmetry in financial services where it is quite easy to cheat individual customers it's called banking technically (laughs) Um, and and therefore, if you have a degree of consolidation or solidarity, an informational interconnection between your customers, that's how you make banks trustworthy. That's how you design a financial system for trust. And so anyway, I'll be quick. As I mentioned, McDonald's is you know, popular, not because it's the best restaurant in the world, it's because it's a low-variance restaurant. Your kids will always eat it, you won't get ripped off, uh, the food will always be reasonably palatable, and you won't get ill. You know, that's the kind of thing which instinctively we want a lot of time. You wouldn't take someone there on a date. And that's what Nando's is for, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but nonetheless, much of the time, it's what you want to do. If you want mathematical proof of this fact that we're really keen on variance reduction, you can find it by going to eBay. If you think about it... How many people here shop on eBay? Excellent. OK. If you were totally economically logical as economics thought logic was on eBay, if someone had a 97% approval rating and was selling something at 80% of the normal price or even 90% of the normal price, you'd buy it, wouldn't you? Okay? Because you go, well, there's a 97% chance it shows up and it's 90% of the price. So I'm getting 97% of a pair of sunglasses, probabilistically, at 90% of the price, which represents a win. I've asked people, nobody on eBay behaves like this at all, do they? Okay? If someone's got 96 or 95%, they can't sell at any price at all. Once you're down below sort of 97, 96, 95, what you can sell at drops from kind of 100% of the price of 100% reliable sellers, and it basically falls off a cliff at around the 96% point. So that suggests that we are heavily influenced by the small risk of a no show rather than just looking at it as a kind of ensemble average of what's going to happen. I think, you know, I, 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 you, can, you can actually plot that. It's very interesting, by the way. Also, it's very interesting to look at the unconscious intelligence people manifest on eBay, which is obviously people who have a high rating are trusted more the more transactions they've engaged in. I had an Uber rating of 4.9, because you know you're rated as a passenger, not just as a driver. And the driver said, it's best there is. I said, well, no, no it's not. sure. I? I mean, four, 5 is the best there is. No, 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 we don't trust people with a 5. <laughs> what? Now, what 4.9 means is you've taken about 60 journeys, and you've been a bit of a wanker once, okay? <laughs> right. Whereas 5 could mean either you're a total asshole who's had to open a new account under a false name, or you've only taken one journey in the past. So 4.9, because it indicates actually frequency of sampling, not just average, is more heavily valued by your Uber driver than 5. Now, given that your Uber driver was probably previously the professor of statistics at the University of Lvov, or Woods, or whatever it is, okay, that's not that surprising. But nonetheless, they spot that. They recognize that actually a 4.9, 4.8 is a better bet than a 5, because they're factoring in the frequency. um, It's kind of Bayesian, I guess, or something, I don't know. Okay. so my contention is that's why brands charge a premium. It's because of the promise of low variance. You buy a Samsung television. No brand can guarantee that their TV is always going to be the best, okay? We're not capable of doing that. No company's capable of doing that. What a brand can guarantee is that, given the amount of money we've invested in our reputation, you can be reasonably confident it's going to be somewhere between good and very good, and you'd prefer that to taking the risk of your TV being somewhere between brilliant and a crock of shite, Okay? (laughs) So that's what I mean about pay a premium for dependability. And there are all these funny signs, if you think about it, that have always appeared in businesses. Long time horizons are indicative of trustworthiness. In game theory, if you think about it, repeat games tend to lead to mutually beneficial positive sum outcomes. One-off short-term games, it pays to defect and to cheat. Companies have, for years, and sons or and daughters or whatever, okay... That says, actually, I'm not just running a business to make a quick buck for a couple of years. I'm actually creating a business in posterity for my own children. And we infer that that business is trustworthy because it has long time horizons. It's why we trust a kebab shop more than the kebab van. Kebab shops invested up front in some fixed costs, right? If he poisons a couple of people, it's got to cost him money to leave. The van can just drive to the next town and start all over again, (laughs) right? Fortman & Mason, since 1707, okay? You're less likely to sell a piece of... You know, if you spent 200-and-something years... 300 years, isn't it? 312 years building up a reputation for top-quality scran, uh, you're not going to suddenly blow that to make a quick profit in one quarter. And so a lot of those little manifest things that companies do... Um, banks, right? Why do, you, why do you have these insanely elaborate bank buildings? Because it says if we were planning to skip town, we wouldn't have spent all this money on marble and oak, OK? If you think about it, you wouldn't feel that happy depositing 50,000 quid in the porter cabin, would you? OK, right? And so signs of permanence, upfront expense as proof of long-term commitment, are reliable signals of trustworthiness. That's what an engagement ring is, basically. It's upfront expense as proof of long-term commitment, OK? <laughs> Have you noticed that however rich the guy is, an engagement ring, when you pay for it, has got to hurt? Okay? Right? There's no no ceiling there, is it? If it doesn't hurt, it doesn't count. And the point is, it's a reliable sign that you're heavily invested in the long-term prospects for the relationship, because if you just wanted a one-night stand, there are probably cheaper alternatives. Okay? Right? Right? So that, you know, if you think that's a very fascinating thing, by the way, about the psychology of this, why women particularly like being bought jewellery and flowers by men, which is precisely because men aren't remotely interested in jewellery and flowers. Okay? <laughs> so if you buy your wife a really expensive ring or a massive vase of flowers, you've spent some money on something that she will like, but which basically gives you very little. Whereas if you buy your wife a drone or a quad bike for Christmas, <laughs> there's a strong suspicion of self-interest. Do you see what I mean? The great thing about jewellery and flowers, there's no suspicion that you've just, you were just in it for yourself. yeah, Right, mass advertising. We're, we're trying to make advertising more and more efficient, but a message, a promise made in public, simultaneously to a large audience, is more trustworthy than a promise made one person at a time. Because in that audience, my wife's actually a vicar, and you're actually trained what to do if someone says, ''But he's already married!'' OK? Because it's always possible. If you promise something in front of hundred people, if one person dissents, everybody knows. If you promise one person at a time, which is called digital advertising, targeted digital advertising, the level of trustworthiness isn't the same. Okay? If you place an ad in, as a friend of mine says, if you place an ad in a woodworking publication, a lot of people reading it don't know anything about woodworking, but some of the readers know a hell of a lot, and if the ad's a blatant lie, they'll ring up the person and they'll ring up the publication and complain. If you make promises one at a time, you can engage in picking off the suckers while avoiding the experts. That's the great thing about an indiscriminate audience. A promise really matters if you make it in public. The other thing to remember is there is a massive... A flower is basically a weed with an advertising budget. (laughs) Nature has a colossal advertising budget because lots of cases in nature, you have to signal something in advance of the person discovering it for real. Flowers are basically saying, if I didn't have any nectar, okay, it wouldn't be worth me investing in all these petals because you'd only visit me once. So hummingbirds go to the plants with the biggest petals because the investment in petals is actually a proxy for investment in nectar. There is false advertising in flowers. Orchids are complete lying bastards, okay? (laughs) But that's why they're rare. It only works at the beginning of the season and then the insects wise up, okay? So that's weirdly why insects are rare, is because they're such deceitful little bastards. Um, Ladybirds, by the way, you would think, wouldn't you, if you spend most of your life on a bloody leaf, that you'd be green, right? So why are they red and black? They're deliberately non-camouflaged as a form of advertising. Because birds have learned to recognize if you're not actually hiding, it probably means you're dead hard in some way, right? (laughs) Because you're so sodding hard, I don't even need to hide. Me, green, camouflage, blah, right, right? <laughs> now, the reason a ladybird can be red and black and birds avoid it is if you do eat a ladybird, don't, okay? It secretes a foul-tasting chemical from its knees, okay? Which is really, really disgusting, okay? And so, often, deliberately brightly coloured plants Or Sorry, deliberately brightly coloured animals, caterpillars, for example. This was actually an Alfred Russell Wallace uh, experiment. The first ever experiment that actually kind of confirmed um, uh, signalling in nature was that the more brightly coloured the caterpillar was, the more poisonous it was. Because it was basically saying, look at me, I don't need to hide, okay? Now, understanding all these things... The vital thing to understand okay, is that whether something's good or bad, whether rudeness in a restaurant is good or bad, whether speed in a a, a liner is good or bad, all those things entirely depend on expectation, context, positioning. And you can actually take something bad and make it brilliant. I'll show you an example of that in a second. Or you can take something brilliant and make it bad depending on how you promote it. I've got a long-standing theory that video conferencing, which should be the biggest thing going in terms of, you know, we're having huge debates about electric cars and goodness knows what else, and nobody's going, well, actually, we don't really need to make the journeys in the first place, right? OK? I've got a vague hunch that the tragedy of video conferencing was it was mismarketed to begin with, because it was sold not as the rich man's phone call, it was sold as the poor man's airline. It was sold as the poor man's alternative to British Airways, not the rich man's alternative to BT, if you like. And so if you think about it, Having a video conference in the business world was a bit like being given a pager because your boss didn't trust you with a mobile phone. You know what I mean? It was the second best to actually going there in person. It wasn't a better form of phone call, which is how it should have been sold. It was sold as the crappy alternative to British Airways. So was kind of like, well, Sutherland's a bit junior to go to Frankfurt. We can't really trust him because he'll probably empty the minibar. Um, but tell you what, we'll allow him to go down to a crappy little basement room with no windows and talk to Jürgen for half an hour over a really bad connection. Right? <laughs> but the point I'm making is that actually if you present something in the wrong way, great things can actually fail to take off. I think it's a really fascinating question you know, how many really, really good ideas fail not because of a failure, in, um, uh, a failure in what they objectively are, but because of a failure in what they were presented and positioned against. So the whole point about science is that context doesn't matter. Trust doesn't matter. Okay? You present something in an untrustworthy way or in a way that doesn't make sense, in a way that just isn't coherent, nobody wants to buy. It doesn't matter how good the product is from the financial services industry has. It doesn't really matter how objectively good a savings product is if no one trusts you. It's a really fundamental point, that. And um, the problem is, it's very simple, okay? Um, in economics, in physics, there's no such thing as magic, but in real life, in psychology, There is. You can actually magic things by changing what people, by mis- redirecting people's attention, by making them look at something against a different background, by changing the context of something. But what economics has done, unfortunately, is in physics you have the second law of thermodynamics, you know, heat energy cannot be created or destroyed. And basically, the economists with Milton Friedman got in on the act. They said there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well. In economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but in perception, there is. I mean, I've had loads of the buggers, to be honest, right? OK? So it's absolutely ridiculous to say there's no such thing as a free lunch. If there's a lunch and it feels free, to be absolutely honest, that's good enough for me, right? You know, I'm sure I'm paying for it somehow, but the fact is, as long as I can delude myself that I'm not paying for it, that's good enough. And so that attempt to make economics kind of perception-free, magic-free arguably, I think, damages human happiness and causes us to make really, really stupid decisions. Because it essentially means that people design things for uh, an objective human being who only cares about objective things when we simply haven't evolved that way. And one of the dumbest things, literally, okay, where marketers and economists would differ would be every year the government spends £40 billion as tax rebates for pension contributions. And I said, well, why do you actually do that? They said, it's an incentive. So I said, your way of incentivizing a 25-year-old kid to put £200 a month into a pension is to tell them that in 40 years' time they'll get a lot more than they expect. They said, yeah. So I said, let me get this straight. I said, have you ever walked past a branch of Carphone Warehouse and there's a thing in the window that says, buy this now and we'll give you something great in the year 2056? Because <laughs> I haven't seen that. Okay, everybody knows in marketing, if you want to sell an intangible product, you have a tangible benefit that's available from day one. That's how you sell long-term intangible products. Unless you're the government, when you're advised by economists... Now, literally, okay, what if you got people to sign up for a pension of £200 a month uh, at the age of 28, and it automatically went up in line with their salary, and they got a free iPad? Okay, that would be more motivating, be more persuasive. It would cost half a billion pounds a year, not 40. So I'm just saying that's a third of the NHS. Now, you could make a moral case for it, saying, well, there's no reason why we should penalise people for saving up for their retirement. Although when you think about it, retirement is a very interesting conceptual thing, isn't it? Have you noticed that if you don't do anything at the beginning of your life, it's called unemployment and it's really, really bad? But if you do fuck all at the end of, at the end of your life, it's called retirement and it's fine? Has anybody figured that one out? You know. So weirdly, essentially... Uh, What a pension is, is is, is its unemployment benefit without the stigma, basically. You can still be working, you're perfectly fit and well, but you've just chosen to wear ridiculous clothes and play golf all day. And obviously, it's the government's duty to support your lifestyle choice. OK? I mean, I, I ask this question partly seriously because, you know, I mean, the whole notion of pensions and retirement is a bit of a kind of status quo bias, isn't it? You might argue that actually since most jobs don't involve gruelling f- physical toil, then actually what we should be spending the money on is actually uh, incapacity insurance, critical illness cover, that sort of thing, not, not actually the right to do nothing when we're perfectly well. French train drivers still retire at 52, I think, is that right? Now, if you think about it, if you're a steam train driver in 1930 crossing the median temperatures of 45 degrees with a ruddy great boiler in front of you, you probably wanted to retire at 52. Now they basically sit in a cab and press a gra- graphic equalizer thing to move the train, and they still retire at 52. This seems a bit weird. But what I'm saying is that 40 billion pounds, that is basically the weirdest thing about a lot of this stuff when you look at it, is This is a wonderful example, by the way, of uh, where the government gets it wrong. Um, There used to be a thing called an ISA, well, there still is, uh, where you had a £3,000 limit for how much you could put in every year. I went to the Bank of England and I said, for some utter idiotic reason, you increased the limit to 20. Is that right? As a result, it completely lost its incentive power to normal people, right? Right? If you think about it, if you're a person on sort of normal income and you've got a three thousand pound allowance for tax free savings, then in an average year you'll go, Well, I'd better put in at least one or two thousand, because otherwise next year I've missed the boat. If you make the limit 20,000, unless you're some massive plutocrat, and by the way, whether people who can save 20,000 a year out of taxed income really need help from the government is a bit debatable anyway, okay? When you make it 20,000, all the impetus that was there when it was 3,000 for normal people to encourage them to save completely disappears. Because someone who can only save 3,000 pounds a year anyway goes, well, there's no hurry. I've got, you know, I can wait seven years and save it all up and put it all in at the end. And so, you know, economic logic... And psych, what I call psychologic, which is the way our brains actually work, the way our brains actually frame things, often operate in absolutely opposite directions. Uh, this is a wonderful book where Shlomo Benazzi um, and Richard Taylor actually redesigned the whole rubric for a pension. And um, uh, the clever thing was, instead of asking people to sign up for a pension and start paying into it straight away, which means you get poorer, they designed a pension where you sign up and the payments you make into your, into your pension are simply a chosen percentage of your future pay rises. And the point about that is you never actually get poorer, you just get less richer, or richer slower. Now, to an economist, there's no distinction. I would argue, once you understand the ergodicity principle, you understand why humans do distinguish between poorer and less richer. Okay. Um, if you look at the results from this simple experiment, uh, here we go, yeah. People commit in advance to allocating a portion of their future salary. Uh, participants increased from 3.5% to 13.6% in 40 months. Uh, what it doesn't say on that chart is, the typical person also saved about twice as much. So there you have literally an order of magnitude change in the savings rate, not by changing the economics of saving, but by changing the psychological aspects of it. I'll give you a really weird one, OK? The government's spending £40 billion to encourage pension saving. right? Now, Everybody here in the room, reasonably representative group of uh, of ages, Um, how many people here, if I gave you £500 in cash and said, you can keep that provided you've paid £500 into your pension before you get home this evening, okay? How many of you would know how to do it? One? This is getting better, so it's about 5% of the audience, I guess. Last time I did it, it was an audience from financial services. One person knew how to do it, and he worked for Goldman Sachs. OK? The point I'm making is this is really strange. Okay? We're spending 40 billion to incentivise pension saving. And yet, if you try and top up your pension with a one off amount, it's almost impossible. Right? I'd have to go home and I'd have to ask my wife in which filing cabinet all that crap was. I'd have to write a cheque for the 500 pounds. OK? I'm not even sure I've got a checkbook, to be absolutely honest, or where it is. Okay? Then I've got to find an address with a P.O. box and a stamp, and I've got to post the check. And then, by the way, I wouldn't get a text saying, your £500 has arrived and with the government top-up it's worth X. I'd basically have to wait six months till I got my next pension statement, remember that I'd paid in £500, and remembered to check. Now, there are two problems with that, right? Okay? One, it's really difficult to do. But two, because it's really difficult to do, 90% of humans assume that they're not supposed to do it. Because the way inference works is that if this was something that people normally did, they would have made it easy. Now, all I'm saying genuinely is if you created a pension top up app where you could top up your pension and you got a text to say the money had arrived, right? That app would cost about the same, would have about the same effect on pensions contributions increase as the classically economic incentive of paying all the tax rebates in okay I mean it really is that crazy okay you're basically you're pushing 40 billion as an incentive to get people to do something which in reality is unbelievably difficult to do Now, I'll give you another example of this. Nobody, for some reason, if you go to economists, essentially they define the problem in economic terms. If you go to engineers, they define the problem in engineering terms. I tried to suggest a perfectly good solution where I said you could get about 20 to 30% of the benefits of high speed two. You could get them in three months, and it would cost a quarter of a million pounds. Now, I still defy anybody to dispute my basic logic. And it goes as follows, Okay, Every time I go to Manchester, I buy an advance ticket to Manchester, because if you don't, it costs a million quid, Okay, (laughs) Right? If you're a bit savvy, you do it two months in advance, and you, get, you, you then get a first-class um, advance, and then WPP says, well, according to our grand grindian travel policy, you're not allowed, and you go, swivel. It only costs 30 quid, right? OK? <laughs> so you get your advance ticket. And as a result, you know that if you miss the designated train, that ticket becomes worthless and you've got to pay full fare. So you leave a fairly large margin for error every time you go to Manchester, don't you? You typically turn up at Euston like 45 minutes to 25 minutes before the, the train you're supposed to be on. Now, I simply said, look, you could create a simple app which just says it's called I'm at Euston already, okay? And you basically go, when you arrive at the station 45 minutes early, you go, I'm at Euston now. And an animated Richard Branson could say, right, pay me 10 quid, and you can go on the train in five minutes' time, which is, which is 40 minutes earlier than your train, because there are loads of seats free, or pay me five quid, and you can go on the train 20 minutes before your designated train. Okay? What that means is my journey time to Manchester is reduced by either 20 or 40 minutes. And also, the other benefit of ISP 2, the line capacity is improved because I don't want to get into the nerdy details of, um, capac- of um, uh, yield management and um, load balancing. But in yield management, you should always allow people to travel on an earlier journey if seats are available. Okay? So you know, airlines will do this. If they've got seats free, they'll generally let you go on an earlier flight, because they then have a chance to sell the seats on the later flight that you've vacated. Okay, So you're actually increasing the efficient use of the line, and therefore increasing capacity, and you're reducing journey time, and it costs you a quarter of a million quid, and you can execute it in, um, uh, in uh, basically... But the model of transport doesn't look at end-to-end journey time, which, after all, in human terms is what matters. It looks at the time people spend on a train, which is also stupid, because you, I'm not making this up, OK? The models that are used to justify infrastructure transport investment are based on the assumption that every human being who boards a train enters a catatonic state and is entirely economically useless for the entire duration of the journey, at which point they end the journey, get off and attend a meeting, and become miraculously valuable again. Now, everybody who's actually been in business knows it's actually the other way around. You're incredibly productive on a train, and then you finally attend a stupid meeting, which is a total waste of three hours of your time. (laughs) And you can't wait to get on the train back home so you can actually get on with some sodding work again. Right? So actually... um, Actually, models of transportation should be based on... There should be incentives for especially slow forms of transportation, you know. (laughs) Because basically, a good train is just like being in the office, except people don't come and ask you dumb questions. (laughs) So it's, um, it's basically fabulous. So this is the kind of thing where, literally, the attempts to make things logical and mathematical... In other words, the only metrics that count are the numerical metrics essentially make organisations make stupid decisions, okay? Big data, by the way, basically caused the death... I haven't got time to explain. Caused the death of Nokia. All the big data had told them that people wouldn't pay more than X for a, a mobile phone, and so they delayed investing in smartphones until they thought they could make them at a price point which the developing world would take, okay? Now, the problem with big data is it all comes from the same place. It comes from the past, and one change, of course, a smartphone isn't like a feature phone, because it's not just a phone, it's a camera, it's a sat nav, it's the internet, it's a computer. Okay? And actually, what people were prepared to pay even for a crappy knockoff iPhone in China was about three times what they were prepared to pay in the past. But all their big data convinced them that they were right, but all it was doing effectively was causing them to make decisions by looking in the rearview mirror. And so the attempt to make everything rational and again, exactly as with Gavin Patterson, the attempt to create a world which conforms to economic theory rather than make economic theory conform to the real world just causes large amounts of dumbness. So I'm thinking of buying an electric car, okay? And I ring up and say, well, if I'm going to buy an electric car, I first want to know I can install a 7-kilowatt charger on my house. So I ring them up and they say, yeah, there's a subsidy of £300 if you install a charger on your house. I go, great, I'll have one of those then. They said, no, no, you've got to prove you've got an electric car. Now, I don't want to be rude, but I'm not going to get a car unless I can install the charger. I don't want to spend three years with a bloody cable coming out of my bathroom window, right? (laughs) OK? But secondly, when you do buy an electric car, there's a £3,000 subsidy for buying the electric car after you've bought the charger. Now, as a marketer, let me give you a tip if anybody's in the automotive industry. Once you've sold some bastard the charger, you've sold them the car. You don't need a subsidy for the car, right? Just get everybody to install a charger, subsidise them by 300 quid, and then start a rumour that the government's going to cut off the subsidy, right? (laughs) Everybody will get a charger, right? It's just as simple, right? Everybody will get a charger, and then when they next go to their car dealership, having installed a bloody charger on the side of their house they're going to feel a bit of a dick if they buy a diesel, aren't they? (laughs) Let's be absolutely honest about that. That's how the world actually works, right? So you don't need the £3,000 subsidy for the car. If you basically bribe the entire population to install electric chargers, it's problem solved, right? Anyway, this is a really important point, okay? that there's a bias in business which is anybody who's got a spreadsheet anybody who's got a numerical model as i said recently you know the model told me to, you know the model tells us to do this it's going to be the 21st century equivalent of like i was only following orders that it's very very easy once you have a numerical justification for any course of action the the, the burden of proof is very very low If you say the product's not selling, so we're going to drop the price, the burden of proof is negligible. If you say the product's not selling very well, so we're going to actually uh, repackage it, rename it, and um, put the price up, now you're in massive argument territory. So business, as I said, polices creative ideas very heavily, but rational people go completely unpoliced. They never have to present to a, a broader group of people who go, yes, you know, I see your point that you can make the trains faster, but what's the point of making the trains faster when the wasted time is mostly at the station? Okay? If you haven't got people who can actually ask questions about the wider context, um, what's the point? Just so I can explain very quickly that you can create anything using perception, okay? what I'm suggesting is that what matters if you want to change human behaviour isn't what the reality is, it's how you perceive it. Now, just to give a few very extreme cases, I'll be very quick here. Your TV produces 176... Well, actually, no. Your TV doesn't produce 176,000 colours, despite what the manual says. Your TV produces three colours. The thing that produces 176,000 colours is your brain... Oh, sorry, 176... Uh, um, uh, 5,997 uh, colours. The remaining colours are produced by your brain. Does anybody know this? The way a TV works is extraordinary. Your TV, when you bought it, it didn't say on the box optimised for higher primates. Um, And that's because dogs don't buy televisions very often. But your dog thinks your TV is shit. OK, I just thought I'd explain that. If you've got a parrot or a pigeon, it really thinks it's crap because it perceives a completely different light spectrum. The way a TV works is the human eye has three types of cone which are sensitised to those three parts of the spectrum, red, green and blue. Now, colour mixing is entirely a biological and psychological phenomenon. It doesn't exist in physics. If you fire red and green photons and mix them together, you don't get yellow photons. You get red and green photons. But the eye can't distinguish between yellow and equal amounts of red and green. So when you fire off red and green in equal amounts, your brain, because it can't distinguish between that and yellow, sees yellow. Weirdly, when you fire off red and blue but no green... Um, Logically, halfway between red and blue is green, but your brain can detect green, and it goes, that's weird. I should be seeing green here, but I'm not detecting any in my green cones. It invents a colour, magenta or purple, which doesn't exist in the real world at all, just to fill the space. Okay? So magenta is basically the brain's way of coping with the inexplicable absence of green. Okay? (laughs) That's genuinely how weird it is. Now, what I mean by that is, if you can create the feeling of something, or the impression of something, you could produce a television that was actually objectively realistic. But it would cost you billions of pounds. Each pixel would be the size of one of those cards that Kim Jong-un's crowds hold up in the, above their heads, right? And you'd have to view it from about 30,000 feet away. It wouldn't be a very practical TV. My wife thinks my TV is too big as it is, OK? Now, it would also cost billions of pounds. So all the television does is it's what you might call emotionally efficient. Okay? It produces exactly the stimuli you need to produce the desired response and no more. Okay? It doesn't try to be realistic. It just tries to generate the emotion that the realistic equivalent would generate. And that's why you know, uh, um, pigeons, which can detect, of course, ultraviolet and also, I think, have five types of cone, they can't understand why you paid so much for a thing which d- barely <laughs> scrapes a depiction of reality to a pigeon's mind. Okay? Now, weirdly, of course... Um, what you might call emotional efficiency or perception hacking is older than that. The, the chilli is a total perceptual hack, OK? It, um, it produces um, a thing... I've just briefly forgotten what it's called. But the chemical that's actually hot in chilli... Capsaicin. Capsaicin, thank you. Um, stimulates a sensor in both human and insect... Sorry, mammalian and insect um, digestion... Which is a sensor normally triggered by heat over about 105 Fahrenheit. So the reason you think chilies are hot, they're not hot in temperature terms, but they trigger something by producing a chemical which hacks your temperature sensors in your mouth to actually fire. The reason they do this is they want to be eaten by birds which don't aren't sensitive to capsaicin. So the interesting thing with birds, the reason is that birds shit their seeds further away. You see what I mean? So to a bird, a chili apparently. You know, they're a bit like pissed English people. They don't notice the heat of the chilli. <laughs> and um, uh, so so ber- birds essentially... And I, I don't know, Chilies might taste like strawberries to birds. I'm not quite sure, OK? But they don't detect it. It doesn't fire up the heat detector. But insects and human or mammals as opposed to humans, don't like it. And so it's a brilliant mechanism. Now, you know... The plant doesn't bother to actually produce temperatures of 105 Fahrenheit. That would be really difficult for a plant to do. All it has to do is produce the sensation. And I think this idea of emotional efficiency is just really interesting. Okay? You don't have to make reality better. You've just got to produce the emotion that a better reality would generate. Got that? Start at the end of the process with the emotion you want. Work forwards. Now, this is my favourite case of, kind of um, emotional efficiency, or what you might call alchemy, I've ever come across. You know that business where your plane lands and about a mile from the, the airport terminal, you hear the engines wind down and everybody looks at each other and goes, oh, shit, it's going to be a bus. <laughs> right? OK? And I, I've had that reaction for literally like 15, 20 years. Oh, God, they've short changes for that bastard bus. OK? And the interesting thing was, one day I land about a year or two ago at Gatwick and the pilot says something this is a piece of literally emotional alchemy okay it's true and it totally changes how i think about something he says now i've got bad news and good news the bad news is i won't be able to get you an air bridge because there's a plane blocking the gate but the good news is the bus will take you all the way to passport control so you won't have far to walk with your bags and we all looked at each other and went hold on that's like always true isn't it but we never thought of it like that we hadn't seen the bus as a We'd seen the bus as an inconvenience, not as a conveyance. Now, next time you're on a plane and there's a bus, say really loudly to your companion, okay? If you're on your own, probably keep quiet, it'd be weird, (laughs) okay? You know, say to your companion, actually, I'm quite glad there's a bus because it'll drive us all the way to the passport place so we don't have to walk past 27 Toblerone stands in order to get out of the airport, okay? And you just synthesized happiness in everybody around you. Now, my point here is if you can create happiness just by the magic of words, stories, comparisons, or whatever. Now, okay, I accept the fact sometimes it can be deceitful. There's black magic, there's bad magic as well. But why not use the white magic whenever you can? Um, Nespresso, who's got a Nespresso machine? I love mine like a child, to be honest. Um, (laughs) But it's batshit expensive in one sense, okay? If you had to buy it in a jar like Nescafe, it'd be out for an equivalent dosage of, of, of caffeine, it'd be about £38 for a jar of Nespresso coffee. Okay? And you'd look at that in the shops, and you go, that's insane, okay? No, I can't pay that. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, it doesn't come in a jar. It comes in a pod. We don't know what an individual cup of ground coffee costs, unless you work in procurement or something, right? Okay? <laughs> and so when we put the 29 or 39p Nespresso pod in our machine, our frame of reference isn't Nescafe, it's Starbucks we think, well, 39 people would cost me £2.40 at Starbucks. This machine's basically making me money, (laughs) OK? Right? Now, my view is actually... I'll give you a tip on this basis, OK? All of you feel really guilty buying really, really expensive tea every now and then. Is that fair? You like buying really expensive tea, but you go, shit, you know, the PG tip's like 1p a bag, and I'm paying like 30p. This is crazy, Okay. OK? Problem solved, okay? Feeling guilty about it? Really easy. If you make that batshit expensive tea with tap water, it's still cheaper than bottled water. You don't feel guilty buying a bottle of Avian, so what are you feeling guilty buying the tea for? You know, at least there's something in it, for God's sake, right? Okay. You know, I did this for my father, really interesting. He wouldn't get Sky. Okay? Refused to. I offered to pay for it. Now, he said, £17 a month for the family pack or whatever it was. You know, um, and I said, well, look, you know, it's only £17 pounds a month for the Sharks and Nazis pack or whatever. Okay? <laughs> so why don't you know? And I'll pay for it. He's not about, you know, who basically, if he's got two hours of Nazi megastructures of a Saturday <laughs> night, he's happy, right? Okay? Wouldn't do it. So I was a bit despairing, even after I offered to pay. And I said, well, actually, I suddenly realised, reframe it. Okay? I said, it's not really £17 a month, though, is it? It's more like 60p a day. And you spend two quid a day on newspapers. So you spend two quid a day on newspapers, 60p for another 100 channels of, you know, Nazis of the Serengeti, okay? <laughs> Doesn't seem all that crazy. And immediately my father went, no, you're completely right. And it really does work like that. What you compare something to affects what it is. Rolls-Royce and Maserati stopped selling their cars at car shows so, so energetically, because a 300,000 euro car looks really expensive at a car show. And they started selling them at yacht and plane shows. Because if you've been looking at Lear Learjets all afternoon, a 300,000 euro car is basically an impulse buy, OK? <laughs> it's, it's like putting the chocolate next to the till, you know, on your way out. You go, oh, I'll have a couple of those. <laughs> no. OK, we can use this for good or ill, But the simple fact is, this stuff really exists. How we perceive the world, okay? But as I said, evolution, if it can take 2% of fitness in exchange for 20% of accuracy, it'll make that trade every time. In our perception, this is the point. We think we can actually separate what we hear from what we see, from what we smell, from what we taste. We can't, okay? Even before it reaches consciousness, all information has been massively manipulated, edited... Um, you know, uh, rather like a digital camera. It's been completely, you know, re-optimised, compressed, reformed. So I'll give you a few examples. Wine tastes better if you pour it from a heavier bottle. Wine tastes better if you tell people it's expensive. Um, Chocolate. Cadbury's were bombarded with complaints when they changed the shape of their chocolate because rounder things taste sweeter. Painkillers are more effective if they're red. Painkillers are more effective if they're um, branded. Um, painkillers are more effective if they're expensive, too. I'm the only person in Britain who complains, you can't get expensive aspirin anymore, OK? Because it doesn't work, OK? I haven't got a 69p headache. I've got a £3.50 headache, concept, <laughs> right? OK? Right? So essentially, it's not just the television that's completely hacking us. You know, the question is of emotional efficiency. I think becomes really important. You know, uh, the Greeks weirdly understood it. There isn't a single straight line in the Parthenon. The Parthenon, the pillars bow out. Was in the middle. The floors curved. The point of the Parthenon. It wasn't designed to be straight. It was designed to look straight when viewed by a human from below. And the fact that we need to design things for human perception and psychology rather than designing things for their objective qualities seems to be a fundamental flaw in economics, which only cares about the things that you can kind of quantify. And that seems fatally dangerous. This is my great example, okay. The great danger of logic is it's very good if you don't want to get blamed for a business decision. No one, It's much easier to get fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. And so people use logic as a kind of defence mechanism. And it's a problem in medicine as well, by the way. You know, a thing called defensive decision-making. You don't take the best course of action. You take the course of action that's least likely to get you blamed. And so in medicine, the problem is that it's much easier to get sued for not intervening than it is for trying something. And so it leads to a culture of over-intervention. And I've always said, look, you know, if you, the problem with logic is that if you put a load of logical people in a room and said, how do we compete with Coke, all of them would have said, well, we need to produce a drink that tastes nicer than Coke, needs to cost less than Coke, and come in a really big can so we all get great value for money. It's very hard to disagree with that until you come to a reality which is the most successful attempt to compete with Coke in 50 years. It's that. comes in a tiny can, costs a fortune, and tastes disgusting. Okay? <laughs> right? Now, I think you can explain it using psychologic, a bit like the McGurk effect. I think the way to explain it is if you pretend something has psychotropic or psychoactive or medicinal powers, it has to taste weird. So some drinks you want to taste as nice as possible. But there are other drinks where you don't. Senatogen, which was a thing called, does anybody remember it? A tonic wine. I'm not sure what a tonic wine was. I think it was actually for people who were alcoholic but wanted to pretend they were ill instead. Um, but I'm not quite sure. But the last ingredient they added was a deliberate chemical not to taste very nice because they said no one will believe this is medicinal if it's too delicious. Diet Coke is deliberately made more bitter than ordinary Coke because if you don't make it a bit more bitter, no one believes it's a diet drink. So I think once you understand psychologic, you realise that depending on the context in which you sell a drink, tastes great or tastes terrible, either of them could be the right thing to do. And that's one of the vital things. In a complex system, unlike the kind of model that economics has in the world, which is a magic-free mechanistic model, small things can have huge effects. And the other interesting thing is the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. And it fascinates me how many really interesting business ideas are probably the result of psychology rather than anything else. Dyson is one of the weirdest, because if you'd come to me before Dyson existed, you know, I'll be honest with you and said, I'm thinking of launching a £550 vacuum cleaner. We all would have said, look, it's a bloody distressed purchase, mate. You only buy a vacuum cleaner when your old one breaks. Now, I met a vacuum cleaner designer who said that actually uh, there's a wonderful illusion going on because when your vacuum cleaner is dying for the last two to three months of its life, it's not doing a very good job, okay? Because the pores are clogged in the bag and the motor's slowly losing power, which means over those two to three months, a surprising amount of detritus builds up in your carpet. And eventually the thing goes bang, and you go out and buy a Dyson, which, wait for it, is transparent... Okay? And the first time you use it, you see an immense volume of shit being sucked into the canister. And actually, what seems to be a testament to the efficacy of your new vacuum cleaner may merely be a testament to the crappiness of your old one. But the fascinating thing with Dyson, you could have had all that engineering, right? Okay, all that brilliance. If you'd made it beige and opaque, nobody would have bought them, would they? So a large component of success in anything has to be psychologic rather than logic. I'm also interested in things we do, which is we think we do things for the high-minded reason, when in reality we often do something for an entirely different reason. A joke thing, which is the reason you have a dishwasher. If I asked you, why do you have a dishwasher? Everybody is to clean my plates and forks and knives, OK? Now, that is one function of a dishwasher. The main value of a dishwasher, really, though, if you're being honest, is that it gives you a place to put dirty plates out of sight, Okay, that's the frustration when your dishwasher breaks down. It's not actually that you have to do the washing up. It's the fact that you have to look at it, Okay, (laughs) Now, toothpaste is fascinating. One, why is it stripy? The second you put it in your mouth, it's all mixed up. So what was the point of keeping the ingredients separate in the first place? Okay, psychologic. People think something's more efficacious if it's got more different components. It's a great way if you want to produce ecologically friendly um, dishwasher powders, for example, dishwasher tablets, okay? If you put eco-friendly on the packaging, we automatically assume it's not as good. It's really important learning, okay? So not only do we assume it's not as good, we A, use too much of it to compensate, but we are less impressed with the cleaning results, not because they're worse, but because we assume they're going to be worse. This kind of McGurk stuff goes on all over the time, okay? If you want people to actually use less of a dishwasher. Um, powder, you put it in a highly intricate tablet with three different colours and a funny ball in the middle, and we go that must be amazing, it's got loads of things going on in that, (laughs) right stripey toothpaste secondly, why do you clean your teeth and I go around and you all go prevent cavities, tooth decay, gum health wouldn't you, right actually, when you think about it, okay now, you really clean your teeth because you're frightened of bad breath the other stuff's just a post-rationalisation Okay, if you think about it, okay, when would you clean your teeth first thing in the morning? Yeah, do you clean your teeth before a date? Yep. Do you clean your teeth after a meal? No. Nope. Okay. If you don't believe me, why is ninety-eight percent of toothpaste flavored with mint? It's got nothing to do with dental health at all. So quite often, I think what's going on. And I think this has important implications for how we get environmentally sustainable behaviour. Is there are things we can do for one reason, but which have a secondary benefit? And I think there's a mistake in an awful lot of campaigning for, say, environmental behaviour, which is it demands altruistic sacrifice. Now, if you think about it, Unilever and P&G and those cleaning brands probably did, before antibiotics, they probably did as much as anybody else in that 70 or 80 years to improve human health and extend the lifespan by just encouraging better levels of hygiene. Okay? But they didn't sell it entirely on an altruistic uh, pro-social benefit. The ads did not say wash with pear soap and help prevent a cholera outbreak. They sold it on selfish benefits, which is basically... I mean, 19th-century advertising basically said, buy this or you'll die single and alone. (laughs) That was basically, you know, very um, very Darwinian advertising. But if you think about it, What you did is you had soap that had a detergent component, which did the important job, but it was also scented, which meant you liked using it and thought you'd be more attractive through doing it. That's what we need to do with an awful lot of technology. So I'll end now very quickly, except to give you just a few more examples of magic you can perform. When I was at university, you had a very simple system where your room in the first year, nearly everybody had an average, equal, fairly crappy room. For your second year, you're out of college. For your third year, you're back in again. If you're second year, you had a lottery. And if you're at the top of the lottery in the, in the second year, you're at the bottom in the third year. If you're at the bottom, you're at the top. And if you're in the middle, you're in the middle. Now, I noticed a very interesting thing, which is no matter where people fell on the lottery position, they were always happy with it. Okay? Everybody told themselves a story which is, you know, I'm in the middle both years, which is great, because what you don't want is a crappy room for a whole year well, I'm at, the, you know, I, I, I'm at the bottom of the lottery, but I'll get a palace in my third year. They just told themselves a different story. And they were happy with the story. Now, here's my point, OK? Everybody who's in engineering is trying to end overcrowding on trains. And they define overcrowding on trains as people who are standing on trains. And I went to the transport people. And I said, look, you're not looking at this psychologically, and you're also assuming ergodicity. I didn't say that, actually, because that would have been weird, OK? <laughs> But it one, you're assuming that 100 people who have to stand 10 percent of the time are the same as 10 people who have to stand 100 percent of the time. They're not. right? If you want to solve overcrowding on trains at a psychological level, you run two trains a day in each direction, morning and evening, which are for annual or quarterly season ticket holders only. So the people who tr- make the journey most frequently get preferential treatment with seats. Standing 10% of the time on the tube, you stand 10% of the time, you know, it's part of... That, that's just shit happens, isn't it, right? OK? You know, if you had a tube where you never had to stand, it would be wasteful, eventually. What you don't want is the same people having to stand all the time. If you solve that problem, you've solved the, the overcrowding problem, not on an instrumental level, but at a psychological level, you've solved the worst of it. Secondly, I said, you're asking the wrong question. You're saying, how can we make as few people stand up as possible I'm going, to, I'm going to ask a different question, which is, how can you get people to choose to stand on trains? And they looked at me as if you're bonkers. I said, no. Remember that thing in my college, right? If you've got, on the one hand, on the other hand, if there's a trade-off between two things, we tell ourselves a story, which is that we're happier with the one we've got. Do you see what I mean? And we do it because, why wouldn't we? It makes us happier. Now, I say it's very simple. At the moment, trains are totally designed in, like, a fascist way, Okay, which is, if you have a seat on a train, you get everything. You get a seat, you get a plug, you get a view out of the window, you get a table, you get a place to put your laptop. You don't have to hold on to anything so you can read a book and read a newspaper. If you have to stand on a train, you get shit all, right? You don't get a plug, you don't get a place to put your laptop. You can't read a book because you've got to have one hand to hold on to some weird post, Okay, You don't get a view out of the window. It's 100% crap versus 100% good. Redesign trains. Put the seats into the middle. Don't give them a table, right? You've got a seat, but you haven't got a view, you haven't got a plug, and you haven't got a table. All along the outside of the train, put little bum rests with little um, ledges for a laptop and a couple of USB plugs and a view out of the window. Bingo. Two-thirds of the people on the train will choose to stand. And they can tell themselves a story. In fact, what would happen under those conditions is standing would become a bit macho, and you'd think of the seats as being for oldies, wouldn't you? Right? (laughs) Right? Okay, so actually there'd be a conscious aversion to using the seats except for people who really wanted them which is that's what you want that's how you solve a problem psychologically rather than trying to solve it through instrumental uh, engineering because if you define overcrowding as people standing the only way you can solve the problem is more longer, faster, more frequent trains if you define the problem psychologically which economics and engineering don't allow you to do hundreds of new possibilities suddenly present themselves And so I'll end very quickly just to say that um, we also did something with pizzas. Big Data says that everybody wants their pizza as soon as possible. We said, actually, I'll, I'll tell you the truth here, okay? When you order wine in a restaurant, you think you've chosen wine. I always ask the question, have you actually chosen wine, or are you just a victim of the choice architecture you're presented with? So remember this, okay? Restaurants really want to sell you wine. The reason they want to sell you wine is you can mark up wine like a bastard okay you can't charge 30 quid for a glass of Johnny Walker Red because people know what it costs in the shops you can't charge 20 quid for a beer because people would have connexions. but you can go and buy a case of Chateau de Bollocks 2010 <laughs> for 5 euros a bottle mark it up to 60 and the middle classes will basically go marvellous hint of blackberries you know okay right? <laughs> and, and also you can't say I don't like wine because you get thrown out of the middle class now don't you right <laughs> Okay, so how do restaurants make sure you order wine? Well, when you arrive at a restaurant, there's already a wine glass, on, load of wine glasses on the table. In fact, if you say, we're not having any wine, they take the glasses away with a huff, don't they? Right, they go, oh, not properly middle class, and they take them away. If you notice, you never go to a restaurant and there're tankard's lined up on the table, or tequila slammers. No, it's always wine glasses, because that's where the margin is. Then they bring you a, a, a drinks list. Oh, no. It's not called the drinks list, is it? It's called the wine list. And the choice architecture of the wine list is you've basically got six pages of a totally stupid range of different kinds of red and white wine, which are mostly indistinguishable from each other, okay? And then there's that crappy back page for the perverts and deviants who want to drink something that's actually produced through the skills of distillation or brewing in a consistent industrial manner rather than by having peasants trample on some rotting grapes. Okay? Right? Right? And then there's the final bloody, uh, the final sort of um, uh, brilliant, brilliant touch when you think about it. They only bring one wine list. And they bring it to the person at the end of the table. Now think about it, right? There's only one drink you can actually share out. So when you've only got one wine list, the person with the wine list, there is only one thing. Well, there are two things they can do. They could say, write tequila slammers all round. (laughs) But generally that's not a sophisticated thing to do. So what they do is they turn to the rest of the table and they go red or white and at that point it's game over for the gin drinkers game over for the beer drinkers you're having this for the rest of the evening whether you like it or not okay my point is that actually we are hugely influenced in the choices we make simply by the way choices are presented to us and with pizza delivery I said I said when 96% of people ask for their pizza as soon as possible there are two possible interpretations One, that's genuinely what people want, that the only people who order pizza are in a screaming hurry. Or two, there's something wrong with your choice architecture. We look at it. The website says the default is ASAP. The mobile phone app, the default is ASAP, ordering time. When you ring up, no one says, is 8.25 OK, or would you like it sooner? They don't even ask you. They assume you want it as soon as possible. We said, look, if you could get people to wait a bit longer, only 20, 30, 40, 50% of people to accept 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, you could actually put three deliveries on one bike. So instead of needing to deliver pizza back to base, deliver pizza back to base, etc., you could basically, within a 15, 20-minute window, you could, you know, Eastern Basingstoke would have three orders, and Western Basingstoke would have three orders, and one bike could deliver all three before returning back home. So you'd literally double the efficiency of delivery. Now, point I made is that let's just try it. Because if you, if you were obsessed with big data, your model would say, this is all about speed, because everybody wants it as soon as possible. On the other hand, change the environment or the frame of reference. We pushed the default out to as far as an hour. We tried expressing the time as time of day rather than duration, which makes it different, if you think about it. A lot of people prefer sooner rather than later, but might prefer 8.45 to 8.30. Two things happened. You could push it out to an hour. There was no loss in sales. The weirdest thing of all, customer satisfaction went up 50%. I don't really know why, to be honest. Okay? It may be that actually as soon as possible means you're always on tenterhooks wondering when the thing's going to arrive. Whereas actually knowing it's coming at 9.30 means you can relax, have a bath or something. I don't know. Okay, Genuinely. It may be that actually you can't be on time when you've been requested as soon as possible. Whereas if you say 8.30 and you turn up at 8.30, they go, shit, that was pretty good. We need to find out more. But what I'm saying is don't assume when you look at data that the economically logical assumption to infer from the data is necessarily the right one. As I said, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. I'd better end very quickly on this. Bees have a very sensible approach. They spend 80% of their energy following the waggle dance. That's making the most of what they already know. But they also spend 20% of journeys, it varies depending on the species of bee, Ignore the waggle dance. People found this baffling. You know, why wouldn't you maximise your efficiency of pollen collection? There's always a trade-off between making the most of what you know and investing in finding out what you're wrong about. And the 20%, they modelled it as a complex system. If you don't have the random bees, which are kind of the R&D function of the hive, it gets trapped in a local maximum and you starve to death. Because one day, all the pollen, or the, rather the nectar you know about, some cows break in, they eat all the flowers, you're doomed because you don't know where to go next. And businesses need to understand the same thing. There's a trade-off between optimising what you already know and can do and investing in the future by actually finding out and continually testing what you might be wrong about. And I think what's happened to business is people have had this narrative of business as being about pure efficiency and bees over 20 million years of evolution have quite rightly decided, no, it isn't about purely about optimising short-term efficiency. There's a trade-off between two different things which need to have two different metrics. And I'll end on that very quickly, except... Go on, I'll show you one more thing. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is very quickly a very, very useful checklist of things that humans really care about that economists don't understand. It's David Rock, New Zealand neuroscientist in New York. He calls it SCARF. Status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness. I think if you look at very, very successful innovative companies, often those that defy reality, defy common sense rationality, what you'll find is that one or more of those things are at work. Um, I think Uber is a fantastic company, not because it actually made waiting for a taxi any shorter, but because it reduced the uncertainty. We'd rather uh, London Underground found the same thing, by the way. We'd rather spend seven, you know, eleven minutes waiting for a train, knowing it's coming in eleven minutes, than five minutes waiting in a state of uncertainty. So understanding... I also think Uber does a status job as well. Does anybody else do this, where you time your arrival on the pavement to coincide exactly with the car drawing up? Anybody else do that? Because it makes you feel like Kaiser Soze at the end of The <laughs> Usual Suspects. You, know. You, know, you wouldn't get Kaiser Soze standing around in the rain going, is that my car over there, would you? Okay. And, but also, the whole thing, it manages expectation of how, you've got to, how long you've got to wait. It, you can watch the car arrive. Do you know how the guy had the idea fantastically? Goldfinger. So in Goldfinger, I don't know if you remember this, Bond is pursuing Goldfinger through the Alps, and he has a map in his DB6 on which Goldfinger's um, uh, car appears as a dot, so he can actually trail it while remaining out of sight. And one of the founders of Uber, not Travis, the other guy, was like stoned in Canada one afternoon watching the film, and he just said, that's how a taxi should arrive. So my hunch that actually the really big ideas, Apple, to a huge degree, are much, much more psychological than people want to admit. And that's partly because the machismo of business people would be uncomfortable with admitting how many billion dollars of value are created by the fact that you make a vacuum cleaner transparent. That's my brutal take on the thing. And one final suggestion about all this. Looking at the whole choice architecture question, there are loads and loads of really, really interesting experiments still to be tried. I've got one which is backed up. If you want to recruit diversely, hire people in groups. When you hire people one person at a time, you go for conformity. If you hire people in groups, you go for complementarity. The only reason I got hired was there were four jobs going, and somebody said, let's take a punt on the weirdo, when it came to (laughs) filling the fourth (laughs) job. If there'd been four individual jobs and I'd applied for all four, I wouldn't have got any of them. I'm still there 30 years later anyway. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
0: That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Drop us a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud to let us know what you think. And if you liked this episode, you can support the RI on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And don't forget to head to rigb.org to see what talks we have coming up next.